All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I want to thank our sponsors for this second hour for making this show economically viable. They are Eurostar Gold Corp and Liberty Star Resources. Well, I'm really pleased to have an old friend with me today, Doug Bro. Uh, we worked together at NMB in New York a number of years ago. I don't remember if it was NMB or ING by then, but it was the same Dutch uh, bank. And um, Doug Groh has uh, is a portfolio manager, the co-portfolio manager, and he's a senior research analyst at Tocqueville Asset Management. He joined Tocqueville in 2003, where he is a portfolio manager, as I just mentioned, of the Gold Fund. Prior to joining uh, Tocqueville, uh, Grow, Doug was uh, Director and Investment Research at Grove Capital from 2001-2003. From 1990 to 2001, he held investment research and banking positions at J.P. Morgan, Merrill Lynch, and, as I just mentioned, it was ING Bank. Uh, Doug began his career as a mining and precious metals analyst in 1985 at U.S. Global Investors, and he earned a B.S. in geology and geophysics from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and an MA from the University of Texas in Austin, where he focused on mineral economics. Welcome, Doug, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Hi, Jay. It's uh, good to be with you this afternoon. How are you? I'm, I'm really good, uh, I, I think, although I must say that these markets have me rattled. I am, I am very nervous about the equity markets in general. Uh, how do you feel about the markets in general, uh, putting aside the gold markets for now? Well, I, I hate to create a success, uh, consensus, but uh, yeah, these markets are very, very anxious, yeah. and um, we certainly see that in the gold stocks uh, today. I'm looking at gold at this moment; it's trading at 1580. It's up 340 an ounce, but uh, I'm seeing a mix of green and red on my screen, and I have gold mining stocks um, flashing both ways. So, I guess investors are very selective in this market. They they're looking for. Um, a sense of safety and security, I think, first and foremost, that seems to express the attitude in the market. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I want to really get into the gold sector and ask you about uh, the dynamics going on there. But maybe just a couple of questions about the Tocqueville Gold Fund, if we could, first. Um, what, what is the size of the fund at this point in time? Uh, right now, it's uh, just over, just about $2 billion, the Tokyo Gold Fund. The gold fund right. itself. Uh-huh. Right, right. And then we manage another about $450 million for private accounts and um, sovereign wealth funds. So oh, okay. it's well, a mix. Uh-huh. Um, so the fund's objective and the strategy to meet those objectives. Sure, sure. Well, it's it's really a gold strategy. It's, it's um, really trying to capture the optionality in the gold equity space. 
through the gold mining companies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've probably talked a lot about that on your show. Um, that optionality is expressed often in a number of different ways, whether it's the leverage to gold price through a gold mining company or perhaps leverage to discovery and uh, the geologic potential that uh, a lot of these gold mining companies uh, are exposed to, um, or growth. A lot of these companies are offering growth. And uh, you know, that's, I think, something a lot of investors have maybe missed. Um, they're looking for exposure to gold, but they maybe don't realize that these gold mining companies, as corporations and as operating entities, can control their future to some extent in terms of uh, adding production, uh, making a discovery, doing a merger or acquisition or a smart deal, and they're not just exposed to the gold price. So there's more to it than the gold price. Yeah, and that's a very good point, I think, because the likes of uh, Dennis Gartman and other people have said, well, if you need gold in your portfolio, just buy an ETF, just buy GLD or something like that. And, of course, it's it's safer, it's less risky for sure, I suppose, uh, then, uh, you know, mining brings with it all kinds of risks, but that's certainly factored into the market. But I, I would gather that in, in previous times we would have seen a higher, uh, higher gold price, gold share prices than we're seeing now if it weren't for the ETFs. Do you think so? Oh, you know, I think that's part of it. I, I think, um, you know, if you go back to about 2006, there was a, a real divergence between the valuations of the gold uh, equities and gold. I mean, they were tracking very closely and um you could you could watch um um the valuations of the gold mining companies and they were trading at a premium but in the late 2006 early 2000 time frame that relationship broke down and i think there were a couple events that occurred one was investors had an alternative to having gold exposure once the etf was was available in the marketplace prior to that prior to 2003 if investors wanted gold exposure typically they had to buy uh, coins or bullion directly and store that, or they'd if they were equity investors they could buy gold mining companies. But buying bullion was really quite difficult. The ETF um, certainly made it more available for the market. And that was a a good thing in that it drove demand for for gold. Mm-hmm. But um, certainly the valuations have somewhat suffered because now investors have an alternative to uh, having gold exposure uh, directly through the ETF. What uh, I want to get again more into that, but what? How has your fund performed uh, compared to the Philadelphia Stock Exchange uh, Gold Silver Index, for example? Has it? It's done pretty well, I believe, over the years, hasn't it? It, it has. We, we have a very good uh, long-term record, um, you know, five and ten-year record. I think our uh, even our three-year record were were well ahead of uh, the. Uh, XAU, the Philadelphia Gold and Silver Index, mm-hmm. were well ahead of our competition in the three years. Um, the last year has been tough for for the XAU. It's been tough for us. It's been tough for our competitors. And I think, um, you know, it's a matter of markets reassessing risk to a large extent. Um, we have um, a fair degree of exposure to a smaller cap and junior companies mm-hmm. as compared to the XAU. Mm-hmm. Uh, the XAU, until recently, it's changed a little bit, but until recently, the XAU was really the major producers uh, who had uh, ongoing operations and cash flow. Um, we've we've chosen to have that exposure, but also approximately 20 to 25% of the portfolio is in the 
the discoverers or the juniors that don't have production at this point, that they're going out and doing exploration and trying to establish themselves as a company. Mm-hmm. Another 35% of our portfolio is a, is a focused on companies that maybe do have production or they're at the initial stage of production, or they're also building out their operations, and they're relatively small, mm-hmm. uh, maybe a mid-cap type of uh uh, company for this this sector, mm-hmm. and then forty five fifty percent of our portfolio is exposed to the large names the the typical names uh, typical gold producers that we know from North America, South Africa, or what ha- what have you mm-hmm. so, so it's, it's a broad buying, exposure of the industry yeah so so buying those those smaller companies, the ones that are evolving, uh, do you see them as having much better growth prospects percentage wise than the big guys? Oh, definitely, definitely. And, and, you know, just to get back to the observation about the performance, um, that really, that exposure really carried our performance in the last couple of years up until recently where now these junior companies are really suffering because of, uh, concerns the market has about risk. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yet I think what the market is missing is, um, well, a number of things. I mean, there's there's tremendous values here in the marketplace now. I think that's one one thing that's very observable. I think the second thing is that um, you know we talked about a little bit earlier the the opportunity that these companies have to create their own future, to create their own corporate identity um, through the the various strategies they take on, whether it's doing exploration or maybe pursuing joint ventures or M and A activity. Or building out their own operations, mm-hmm. and um, you know certainly uh, there's growth opportunities at this gold price uh, for for those those companies that are relatively well capitalized and have a good asset base. I think mm-hmm. that's important. Yeah. So what do you look for then when you're let's say on the mid cap type of a company? What are you particularly looking for? Well, every situation is a little bit different. I, I guess, and we yeah. go at it maybe at different at, at different levels. I guess, um, you know, I guess we're ultimately looking for good assets. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that's first and foremost what we're investing in. And then, as part of that, we want to see that there's a capital uh, base and a balance sheet sufficient to support those assets. And then, of course, um, we want to understand management strategy, their skill set their experience, their exposure to the sector, what their intentions are, as they'll ultimately ultimately use that capital to, to create the value from their, their assets. That's a general kind of uh, perspective, Jay, but I think each situation is a little bit different. When we look at a stock, oftentimes what we're trying to think about is why is the market valuing it the way it is and what is the market missing or what is the market already discounting in the valuation? And that, for us, is a way to understand that company, understand the market's view, and then see where maybe the market is overvaluing it or over-discounting a situation and see where we can understand it as long-term investors and perhaps put in perspective that discount or that excessive valuation and recognize that maybe that's a short-term concern. Maybe it's it's a matter of time and... Um, uh, expertise that will resolve any issue or problem or, or what have you. So um, it, it all kind of depends upon the, the story and the opportunity. Sure, sure of but, course, uh, every story is different, but certainly right. 
Certainly, you mentioned management, and I'm wondering. Uh, this is an industry, of course, that has booms and busts, long periods of both, of both, and so we we go through periods of time when there's big growth and a shortage of skilled management. Are you finding that to be an issue? Well, it is. I mean, I think you know you've seen that this past uh, couple of years, where um, you know I'm sure uh, many are aware that there's been uh, capital cost blowouts and operating costs have escalated quite a bit. Um, you can point to uh, the cost of rolling stock, or you can point to oil or inputs, steel, chemicals, what have you. But I think also an important component is labor. And that labor is not just the labor that's at the mine site, but consultants and services and um, the various inputs that that are uh, that are required for a mining operation. Um, you know, there's the, the mining industry is in the process of mining is not real straightforward. I, I think uh, you're probably well aware of that that it can be rather complex, and Absolutely. It, it takes it takes a number of skills to be successful at it and one has to be able to coordinate those skill sets and that that's very difficult to to direct traffic and to make sure that everybody's in the place that they need to be and on time and within budget and unfortunately you know um, 20 years ago or 15 years ago there weren't that many people involved in mining mm -hmm. as as active as they are today right and I think you know what's kind of interesting is um, Obviously, there's been a lot of disappointment in the gold mining equities in the past year, and now management teams are being held accountable. Um, yeah. And we're seeing, you know, a number of CEOs resign or management teams change change their profile. Um, I think in response to the market, I think in response to disappointment in terms of uh, what was promised and what was expected. Um, and, you know, whether it's these people that are stepping down that are to blame, it's not always clear, but unfortunately, oftentimes leadership has to take responsibility for uh, failed efforts. Right. And well, it's certainly, I think many people who don't know the mining industry very well think it's just a matter of digging up some dirt. And uh, the science that goes into building a mine, it's incredible, from uh, the exploration development of a, of a deposit all the way through to its production, its environmental work that needs to be done it's it's uh, incredibly complex and uh and the science that's involved in bringing a mine into production is uh, metallurgical sciences to add another and unbelievably complex and i think most people don't have an understanding uh, an appreciation for that and and also the risks that are inherent of course it is a very risky business but you know we had rick rule on this show a week uh week ago i guess it was last week and rick talked about uh, he has turned rabidly bullish on the mining sector right now and he points out, Doug, that uh, in the 1970s, it was you know took a good 10 years before the real discoveries started to be made in Nevada. Uh, open pit heap leaching and so forth came in, and we started having in some underground high-grade deposits uh, discovered and in, put into production. It takes a long time to take a to take a mine into production once you found a deposit, even. And his point is that if he believes now we're about to see a very major uh, explosion in uh, in, in projects uh, and successes in exploration uh, at the very time that the mining shares are really, really depressed. And he loves it because he is a contrarian investor that's been extremely successful in recognizing those opportunities. And when I heard Rick Rule talk like that, I have to say it, it made me somewhat more optimistic about the prospects of this 
of this sector. Uh, what are your feelings along those lines? Well, you know, that is interesting. I think in a regard, um, I was having this discussion with somebody the other day. In some ways, we're at the end of a cycle and the beginning of another cycle. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily just a date and time, but we're going through a phase. You know, we we basically rejuvenated this industry in the early part of the last decade. You know, the end of the last century, this industry was decimated. Mm -hmm. It basically regrouped in 2001, two, and three, and a lot of capital was brought together to go out and explore and, and develop whatever assets could be uh, securely uh, identified and, and developed. You know, we had the 2007, 2008 uh, financial crisis where that really, I think, um, reset people's plans. And we've had a nice successful couple of years here in this sector where more capital was raised in 2009 and 10. And, you know, some of the plans that were put in place just weren't delivering here in the past year. And I think everybody's kind of coming back together now here and as we've corrected maybe 25, 30% in the last 12, 12 to 18 months and recognize that, hey, you know, maybe it has to be rethought. And I think that process is a good one in that it sharpens sharpen people's uh, vision and perspective and approach. It makes them a little bit more disciplined for what Rick is suggesting is, is uh, forthcoming, and that is a real, a real a focus on all this capital that's been raised, all this intelligence that has really been put together and organized now. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's taken quite a while for uh, companies to organize themselves in terms of getting the right people and and uh, to, to do the processes they need to do to be successful. And, and I think there's, there are a number of things that are coming out in the industry um, in the next several years. I think technologically, uh, we're seeing advances in terms of uh, metallurgy. Um, mm -hmm. that, that's always very much a positive. I think um, we're going to be treating more refractory ores, and the industry has to become more comfortable with treating refractory ores. Refractory ores typically are deeper, so we need to think about um, the scale of mining at deeper uh, levels, whether that is you know deeper pits or uh, accessing underground um, in a in a more bulk manner. Mm -hmm. And and the technology is is facilitating that. Mm -hmm. uh, Anglo uh, Anglo Gold is um, is developing. Uh, some uh, technology for accessing deep reefs in South Africa, which, which I think is very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I, I think uh, exploration too is is um, maybe taking a little bit of a step backwards right now because of uh, resource nationalization concerns. But I think there's still frontiers out there that are very compelling, and um, you know, offer a lot of opportunity for those that are willing to take on those type of risks. Mm -hmm. When you talk about refractory ores, a lot of times it requires a great deal of energy to uh, to process those. Is there uh, are there some energy efficient uh, ways to handle refractory refractory ores, or or what's on the table? What's what are you seeing? Well, I think um, pressure oxidation is is really going to be the mainstay for mm -hmm. treating refractory ores, and I and I think it's it's um, a matter of scale and and for each deposit to um, develop its pressure oxidation system for that particular deposit. I, mm -hmm. You know, there's some technology that can be taken off the shelf, but 
but um, has to be customized. Know, really has to be customized, and I think you know for the mining industry, there's enough risk already um, embedded in the entire process, and I think typically uh, metallurgists maybe have looked at whatever has been done in the past as the best solution to perhaps their problem, and I think as as you know, the world gets smaller in a way where people are sharing ideas and, and communicating uh, more mm-hmm. effectively and, and efficiently. Um, you have, I think, a sharing of ideas where people are recognizing that, hey, you don't have to always do it the way it's been done in the past. You know, maybe there's somebody else on the other side of the world that has tweaked the process a little bit and has been very successful with that. And, you know, they're maybe very willing to share that idea or there's a discovery or, or a willingness um to to try a process out somewhere else, and I, I think I think in a regard you're going to see more of that, where uh, people are willing to take more risks because there's more information available to support their their uh, perspective, their risk taking. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly we've seen uh, not in the share prices, but in the uh, performance, uh, the financial performance of these gold mining companies since. Lehman Brothers has been very, very good. And I like to talk to my listeners and also to my subscribers about the real price of gold. We've, uh, I talked about it earlier on the show, so I don't want to bore people with it again. But the notion is that an ounce of gold will buy an awful lot more of a basket of commodities now than it did, uh, than it did right before Lehman Brothers. And with that, Doug, we've seen, and I think you'd agree, I want, if you don't, say so, but I'm looking at the major gold mining companies. There happens to be seven household names that I track because they were in production before Lehman Brothers. They had uh, a track record that you could track and trace now. Uh, Earnings have gone up very, very dramatically, yet share prices have not. But do you see earnings improvements uh, among most of the, say, the the established producers? And if so, why 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 is that happening? Is it happening because of production levels or more because of margin? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I think as far as uh, profit performance on the earnings line, I think we're going to probably see relatively flat to uh, challenged uh, earnings over the next couple of quarters. And and I think the main issue here is, is really the gold price. Um, mm-hmm. You know, on average, I think uh, for the second quarter, it was like 16.20. That's certainly, I believe, ahead of uh, the second quarter of 2011. But as we go through the year, it's going to be a little bit more difficult to um, improve the – well, have a better average than last year if we don't get a better gold price. Mm-hmm. The average last year was maybe 1590 or so, something like that, 1570 So we really have to see a higher gold price in order to take care of that side of the margin. And as, you know, I'm sure has been discussed a lot on your program, um, you know, operating costs have been up in the last year, whether it's been from labor or inputs or oil. Now, oil is is coming off a little bit, Mm -hmm. and that's going to help out. Oil can be significant. 30 to 40% of cash costs can be uh, attributed to oil Mm -hmm. or power costs. Mm -hmm. And those seem to be abating somewhat. And while that might add twenty to thirty dollars an ounce in, in margin, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that's that's enough to somewhat make up for um, a relatively uh, flat gold price. And mm-hmm. I think what we really need to see is a much much more robust gold price. And I think um, that too is what equity investors are waiting for. I think there's enough risk concern among equity investors 
just in the equity market, not to speak to the gold mining sector, for general equity investors to kind of shy away and, and really wait for for um, a high enough gold price to overcome some of that risk that they that they see in in uh, in the equity markets and certainly in gold mining equities in particular. Well, I do know that um, you know the the gold price took a hit with everything else after Lehman Brothers, but we did see a very dramatic increase uh, in share profits after that dramatically because oil really took a hit at that time, and a lot of the other uh, materials items came down in price too. Remember the first time that gold went over a thousand dollars an ounce, and the mining companies were crying because they couldn't make money, and uh, Newmont or Barrick and those guys were having trouble buying the replacing their big earth moving the tires for the big earth moving machines and so forth. But right. I, I hear what you're saying, and certainly I've been watching the analyst estimates of uh, earnings, and they they do look challenged. They have been scaling them back going forward this the rest of this year and into next year. So, uh, of course, this past weekend I was up uh, in New Hampshire visiting with James Turk, and uh, James is the perpetual bull on gold and silver, and uh, he thinks we could see he still is holding to his $2,000 price target by the end of this year. I suppose that would uh, gladden the hearts of uh, of the gold mining tr- the companies, huh? Oh, I, you know, I think, you know, um, it's rather interesting. Uh, 50 to $75 would mean a lot for these companies. I don't think we need 400. I will take it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, a hundred dollar, uh, uh, expansion in the gold price would be significant to a lot of these companies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you think about it. We've seen 40, 50, $60 days. Um, you know, we could be talking a week from now and saying, well, the old number was 1585. Yeah, and you know, all of a sudden you're at 1685. That's not too preposterous, given on, given what's going on in Europe and around the world. Um, you know, I, I think what's kind of interesting too to observe is that while while this gold price is maybe difficult for some operators, and um, there's some discipline I think that does come from this, and that is that now operators have to make money at the current gold price, say 1580 or 1600 dollars an ounce. Mm-hmm. And we've been trending at that level for a period of time, and and that that type of margin is getting set in the management's uh, planning, where yeah. they're planning on operating at a, say a sixteen hundred dollar gold price, and they're managing their cost to that uh, type of uh, price. And if you start with that type of discipline, and the gold price takes off, the expansion can be really significant and meaningful to the bottom line. Uh, for investors, and that's why investors get involved in these stocks. That's the price optionality yeah. of of the gold mining sector. Exactly, well put there. You know, uh, I would imagine too that uh, as the mining companies, when the margins spread and they had this explosion of growth and earnings and so forth post Lehman Brothers, that uh, in some instances labor unions uh, were not unaware of that and probably were looking to that uh, to reset contracts or to look for stronger bargaining positions as well. Well, you know, I think everybody's looking for a piece of the uh, a piece of the action, right? Yeah. I mean, whether it's it's labor independent labor, consultants, services, uh, organized labor, um, you know, a, a mining team, uh, crew, whatever. I think everybody's calling for their own in, in this environment, and certainly we've seen it from from the likes of government and um, you know political interests. I mean, one. We didn't talk about it, but you were touching on it a little bit earlier. Um, the environmental concerns become an important aspect of our analysis. Permitting sure. is becoming more and more difficult 
And, it, you know, unfortunately here in the United States, I think it's becoming politicized between, uh, you know, powers that are authorized and powers that are, that wish they were authorized to oversee mm -hmm. the, the environmental process. Yeah, well, it's very unfortunate, no doubt about that. Doug, we only have a few uh, minutes left here yet, but sure. I want to ask you, uh, if you could just give us an idea, what are what are some of the favorites or what are some of the top uh, names in the Tocqueville Fund at this point in time? Sure, sure. Well, you know, we, we hold probably a lot of the names that people are very familiar with. Um, you know, we like the royalty companies. We think they've, they've got a very good model, uh, Royal Gold and Franco Nevada. Um, they should do very well. They're not affected by the cost pressures the way uh, other companies are. Um, one of the names that's uh, in our top list is uh, Osisco. They've had a lot of success in terms of building their operation in um, in Quebec, and uh, we think they're very undervalued given their uh, their startup situation. We think that's resolved. Uh, Gold Resource is another company. They operate in Mexico. Um, they have a dividend, a monthly dividend. They just declared uh, today. They've been challenged a little bit with production here in the most recent quarter. But in speaking to them um, last week, um, we understand that basically they took the hit now to develop or uh, for the next several quarters. So we're looking forward to uh, uh, really a resolve to, to uh, a hiccup or bump in the highway, as it were. And we're assured by the fact that uh, you know their cash is is really quite uh, quite stout and, and and they have a good cash position, and uh, we're comforted by that dividend. Certainly, a monthly dividend. Yeah, Which dividends are certainly something people are mindful of. Do you see a growth of dividends coming in the, among the majors? Well, you know, I, I think we should. I, I'm expecting it. You know, um, as much as the mining companies are maybe complaining about a squeeze on the margin, they're doing very, yeah. very well in terms of cash flow. Mm -hmm. And I think they understand that message that investors aren't all excited about big capital projects. You know, yeah. they got the message that investors want a return of capital. And I, I expect to see more uh, dividends. I expect to see an increase in dividends. Yeah. And certainly Newmont's effort um, last year to tie the dividend to a gold price is, is really to be applauded, and I think that's done a lot for their stock. Oh, yeah, uh, talk to us about that. I'm not that familiar with that. Uh, what is the arrangement there? Um, they pay a, a portion of uh, their cash flow based on um, the gold price, the the gold price during the quarter. And um, they they initiated that a year ago, and then they raised it. I don't have the exact uh, formula in front of me, but um, you know, as long as um, they're making you know a, a cash flow and the gold price is uh, steady, they're going to be paying a nice dividend. Well, it's uh, certainly certainly good to see. I think, uh, in my view, uh, it looks like a good time to get into this sector, and I've I've not been the most optimistic. I must say, given my deflationary views of the world, uh, I've been very very hesitant and, and worried about things and worried about equity prices because it seems to me if the world is broke, uh, that you might see a compression of multiples, no matter how good the companies do. But I'll tell you, I'd rather own companies that have cash flow and can grow and can survive as opposed to those that are going to have to go back perpetually to the equity markets and raise capital. I think it was Rick Rule quoted some numbers from John Kaiser last week. That I think half of the companies that trade in Canada are selling it under 25 cents and have less than six months of working capital. So it seems to me there's going to be, unless the markets turn around sometime soon, and I guess they could, 
likely to be a lot of dead bodies out there, and those companies that are the survivors, and I'm sure those are the ones, for the most part, you have in your fund, are going to be uh, really in the catbird seat when that happens. Well, you know, for shoppers, uh, mining companies that are shopping for assets or, or uh, financial groups that are, are looking to um, accumulate positions, certainly this is an ideal time, without a doubt. There's, uh, you know, there's, there's a store of value in the gold deposit, and uh, I think, you know, those that are sophisticated to recognize that um, are going rec- to see the opportunity here yeah. in the next several months. No question about it. And, Doug, we, we do have to leave now. Uh, we're out of time, but tell our listeners, uh, it's the Tocqueville Fund. Is there a website where people can track uh, the fund and, and learn to know about you and, and perhaps buy some shares? Sure, sure. Um, it's the Tocqueville uh, Gold Fund, and um, you can go to the, the website. Uh, it's uh, www.tocqueville.com, and it's spelled Tocqueville is spelled T-O-C-Q-U-E, V-I-L-L-E, and you just go to Tocqueville.com, and um, you'll go go to our page, and there's write-ups by John Hathaway and Francois Sicart, um, kind of remunerations about the markets and um, and the world we live in, which which is kind of interesting to to look at too. Oh, it certainly is, John Hathaway. I've read his material. He's been a guest on this show in the past. Uh, excellent. An excellent mind and, and certainly one that's worth uh, clicking your mouse to uh, to read about. Uh, thank you very much, Doug, also for, for being with us today and look forward to talking to you again uh, sometime right. in the not-too-distant future. Thanks very much. Thank you, Jay. Take care now. Folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back with Arch Crawford. He's going to talk to us about why, uh, well, his, his views on the markets. We're going to ask him also about how he feels about gold and silver. Uh, he's very bearish on the equity markets. What is... What is he thinking about gold and silver? So don't go away. We'll be right back with Arch Crawford. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. Arroway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arroway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arroway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW. 
We hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Times I am really happy to have with me once again Arch Crawford. He's the author of the Crawford Perspectives newsletter. Uh, Arch is a very astute technical analyst, that's for sure. He's uh, had his training years ago with one of the top technical analysts at Merrill Lynch, uh, but he has also come to be known as one of the top uh, analysts using astrology as a as a tool to help him get things right. And, and many people are very skeptical about astrology. Skepticism is good, but I think it's also important to look at the evidence and to look at the results. Archie has had a very successful track record. He's been uh, the top time timer among the Holberts, uh, the people that Holbert uh, tracks in the newsletter business. And, uh, and that means quite a lot to me because I know that uh, Holbert is very careful and very ethical about the way he, the way he does, uh, the way he grades and, and looks after and judges uh, newsletter writers. So welcome, Arch. It's really good to have you back. Delighted to be here. Uh, you're having some thunderstorms down there in uh, the rainy season uh, in Arizona, down there where you live near Tucson or outside of Tucson. Uh, was yes. that predictable from the heavens? Uh, oh, yes. Uh, actually, the thunderstorms, uh, the thunder flashes around the world exactly follow the sunspot cycle. Mm-hmm. And we are nearing the high of the sunspot cycle, I think, early the first half of next year sometime. So we're getting quite a lot of uh, uh, lightning flashes. Mm-hmm. Well, we've certainly seen them up here in this part of the world in New York City as well. Um, so what? how long is that cycle? Is that a, a multi-year cycle that you're talking about? Uh, the, sunspot uh, the sunspot cycle is 11 years with a slightly stronger uh, every other one, like every 22 years. Mm-hmm. And this one? Um, well, it's... So, but the projection of the 11 years comes out with the high in May, I believe, but it could be, you know, within two or three months of that, one side or the other. Okay. But uh, sunspots have any impact that you can tell on markets? Well, yes. The um, I, I have on my website uh, the NOAA uh, satellite uh, outputs that come every five minutes. And it has the number of protons, the number of electrons, the number of X-rays, and the Earth's magnetic field changes uh, updated every five minutes from a geosynchronous satellite through NOAA. 
that's National Ocean Act Graphic and Atmospheric Administration. And mm-hmm. uh, the highest level of um, electrons I ever saw over an extended period was the week of the crash in 1987. Mm-hmm. And um, that was for one week, and they were over 10 to the third uh, per cubic centimeters, mm-hmm. per cubic centimeter of electrons. And what is the weirdest thing I have ever seen is the numbers have been 10 to the 4th and 10 to the 5th per cubic centimeter most of this year. Mm. I've never seen anything like it. Mm. And so the you sun think that is may... much brighter than I've ever seen it. Mm-hmm. So you think that could also be an impact, could have some impact on the on the markets now? Well, it has a tendency to, to be associated with large drops in the market, but what I'm saying is that the only reason, with these headlines that mm-hmm. we're getting every day now, um, under normal circumstances, in normal years, the market would have been down maybe 50% by now already. I believe it is being artificially held up by uh, the government and Wall Street working together. A number of years ago, uh, quite a few years ago, a Federal Reserve official suggested, uh, and I don't remember his I don't think it was McChesney Martin. I can't remember if it was a Fed chairman or another official suggested that the uh, that the government should come in, and this was before 1987. The government should come in uh, and buy the S&P 500s when the market started to collapse. Do you think there's any evidence that that's been happening? Through, well, through like you said, boxes. in 1987, uh, Reagan called this bunch in and said, "Don't let that happen again." And they formed the Working Group on Markets. Um, and I believe that they have been more and more um, uh, intrusive in their control of the markets and as the last few years have progressed. Yeah. So now, Arch, we don't have to worry anything more about the uh, astrology, about Mother Nature, about markets, uh, power of markets. We just know that we've got God Almighty on the throne at the Federal Reserve in, in Washington, right? Well, I wouldn't put it that way, but if you if you want to think that way, <laughs> I know you're being uh, a, little a little bit facetious. Uh, yeah, facetious well, uh, but I mean that's what they're telling me here on CNBC. So I just thought I would repeat it. Oh right. Um, so okay, but let's focus on this Mars Uranus cycle. And you, I better say that word right. It's Uranus. Yes. Um, which you call the crash cycle, and for listeners that may. Be new to you. I think most everybody on this show has probably heard of you if they haven't heard you before. But explain what this cycle is and why you are paying so much attention to it now. Well, I, I've did, done studies on all of the cycles of the planets, and uh, every crash that has occurred in the last hundred years has been in the same 40% of that cycle. The Mars Uranus cycle is about two years, and we do not have a crash every two years, but if there is a setup, from uh, fundamentals or from technical analysis, um, a, a setup for a potential crash, it will occur. It has always occurred so far in, uh, from the time that the Mars and Uranus were opposing each other to the time uh, as it was 30-some degrees approaching the next conjunction. So that's mm-hmm. uh, somewhat less than half the cycle. It's actually 40% of the cycle. Mm-hmm. Well, we just entered that period. Uh, I wrote a piece on it that's on my website in 1995 or 6, 
and there have been two more crashes since then that also occurred in that period in which I, I predicted. Well, I predicted all of the crashes from 62 forward. Um, and that's Arch, uh, Arch while, while you're at that, now you've mentioned your website twice. Just give our listeners um, the what is the, the address of that website? Uh, it's uh, CrawfordPerspectives.com, and you can Google... Arch Crawford or Crawford Perspectives, and it's like the first thing that comes up. Sure. Excellent. Okay, so people can go there and get a lot of information, not pay a nickel for it. Yes. Or um, they can go there. A lot of get... it is not updated regularly, but there's a lot of basic information on it that's good. Right. Also, the the March newsletter of this year, which has the Bradley model for the entire year in it, is on that website free. Right. Okay, so you put out a an alert to your subscribers, and and uh, by the way, of course, you people can keep up to date uh, by subscribing to your letter, and they can do that through the website, I suppose. Yes, that's correct. Okay, so now you put out an alert talking about how you were not only shorting the market; I think you were doubling down on the market. That's Is that right? right? And, uh, and we went short on the on the Grand Trine on uh, March the fourteenth. Mm-hmm. And the market went slightly higher a few days later, and then slightly higher one more time on I think it was April the second mm-hmm. that the market peaked. Then uh, the Dow and I said at that time I said I don't know if we'll come back up to uh, a, a little higher or a little lower at the normal seasonal high around the end of April or early May, and it did come back. The Dow Jones hit a slightly higher high on May the 1st, and that was the final high. But the S&P and the advanced decline lines and things like that all peaked on April 2nd. Mm-hmm. Oh, and and now, uh, but you're doubled down now. So how's how's that trade going so far? Well, actually, um, we doubled down on the uh, 16th of March on the day, on the close of that day. And uh, we're doing pretty well so far. There was actually, um, we're we're working on another uh, three-pronged rally top since we came up from the 4th of June, which bottomed, by the way, on the lunar eclipse. Uh, We've had three pride projects, projections up, one in the middle of June, one in early July, and one in about... Uh, four or five days ago, mm-hmm. and they got nowhere near the May top. Uh, they didn't get close, real close to the May top, but um, I believe that third prong is it and that we have now passed the high of the secondary high for the market. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting, too, because I know that Richard Russell's looking at the Dow theory, uh, May tops and non-confirmation, and it looks like uh, it's it's certainly... Uh, bear market time from that perspective as well. You had a lot of very interesting comments uh, in your July newsletter, uh, and I don't think that we have time to discuss them, but one of the things you did say, and it, it may come into play with our guests next week, Dimitri Orloff uh, and Ian Gordon, but you said uh, all positive and analysts are making comparisons within our post-World War II era. They seem totally unaware that there are much longer cycles that are coming due, potentially bringing another Great Depression and possibly another Great War. They also seem unaware that a portion of the very rich and powerful are bent on making that happen in order to gain total world uh, domination. 
Uh, pretty strong words, uh, Mr. Crawford, but certainly not alien to this show. We've had other people saying much the same thing. We got about a minute to to go. Any comments? Uh, did I say that? <laughs> <laughs> I guess I did. Yeah. Well, if you didn't say it, somebody is writing your newsletter in your name. So, I definitely uh, did it. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's uh, serious. The globalists are trying to push us, the the America, into the North American Union with Mexico and Canada, and then mesh the whole thing into a one-world government, and right. they're moving forward. Uh, it's been gradual, gradual, gradual. Well, this year it's moving forward in an extremely rapid manner that is uh, extremely scary to me, and I, uh, there's a piece uh, going around now about Glenn Beck interviewing uh, Michelle Bachman. She's on the Intelligence Committee, and they're saying that um, the, the Muslim Brotherhood has... Um, and interjected itself into the highest levels of our government. Mm. Well, well, I, it is it is very unsettling, no no question about it. And uh, I guess um, we'll have to leave it go at that because we are out of time. Maybe we'll have you back on to discuss it, and then maybe uh, people are going to have to start looking to sources other than human beings for answers to these questions because it, it is very very unsettling what's going on now. And the notion that individuals are no longer important, that governments and we are here to serve them, and nations are no longer important, that we are all there to serve some grand, super rich, uh, super powerful entity. Uh, it is very, very unsettling. Arch, thank you for coming on again with us, and uh, we'll look forward to having you on again thank soon. Thank you so much. Folks, don't go away. I'm going to be back with some closing thoughts on today's show and also uh, talk about next week's guest. Don't go away. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. Arroway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arroway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arroway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor 
at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. We have just a few minutes here left. I'd like to just share some of my thoughts with today's show. Uh, I always uh, really enjoy Professor Zingales and uh, his views. Certainly, uh, I don't expect that uh, a man of his uh, of his stature at the University of Chicago is going to come out and be an Austrian economist. I don't expect him to uh, to say the kind of things that I would really like to see uh, hear said uh, concerning uh, a monetary system, uh, back to an honest monetary system. But I, I do think that people like that are very valuable in the sense that they are looking for answers and they are honest about what is wrong with the system and they're willing to speak out about it. Uh, and I think through a dialogue with people like that, perhaps uh, we can all learn from each other and perhaps even uh, some of the truths that I think are truths, certainly from honest money, uh, an asset-based money as opposed to a liability money, the disciplines of a gold-backed system, um, maybe uh, Professor Zingales and other people of influence can can be uh, can be persuaded eventually to to think in those terms. But certainly, um, uh, Louis Lehrman, Ron Paul are doing all they can uh, to educate people, and they've been very very successful. Did have a very nice time last weekend. Uh, my wife Teresa and I visited with James Turk up in uh, New Hampshire. And James is as bullish as ever about gold and even more so about silver. James tends to be much more of an inflationist. He is an inflationist, even a hyperinflationist, whereas I tend to be more on the deflation side of, uh, of, of the picture, at least for now. But James makes a very good point. He points out that we are having one of the worst, uh, one of the worst, uh, dry spells, um, that we've had in a long, long time, maybe back to the 30s. Uh, and in fact, uh, food inflation has always correlated very, very well with higher prices for gold, with higher gold prices. And uh, James uh, says he's still very comfortable in predicting a $2,000 gold price by the end of this year. Well, as you heard Doug Gross say, $2,000, we don't need that. $100 even higher from where we are would really do wonders for a lot of these uh, gold mining companies and their profit margins. Well, certainly the uh, uh, the notion that perhaps the gold markets are rigged, uh, why would that be alien when we're seeing the LIBOR markets are rigged? We're seeing everything about the U.S. markets, basically, and the global markets are not allowed to function as free markets. So the notion that somehow the gold market would be the only market that's not rigged when, in fact, the policymakers hate gold and they want to see, uh, they want to see liability money put in place so that they can continue this theft scheme of taking from those who produce and create wealth and putting it into their own pockets, and I include government in that, as well as the policymakers, as well as the central banks for sure, uh, are really getting rich, rich, rich by uh, picking other people's pockets through what is really simply a, um, a counterfeit system. I mean, there's no other way around it. It is legal counterfeit, but it's counterfeit nonetheless. So the people that create wealth are having it siphoned away from them by this scheme of... Uh, of um, uh, fiat money, and it is a crime. It is a crime, but it's a legal crime. And until the people uh, really stand up and complain about it, and I don't know where the churches are, because if they really care about justice, I think they would be hollering about this too, because it is a legal theft scheme of fiat money. Well, next week we're going to be talking to Dmitry Orlov, uh, who has written the book Reinvesting, Reinventing Collapse. And he's talking about the parallels between what he sees in the Western world and the United States with what took place in the Soviet Union. Well, he was with us a couple of years ago, and a lot of things have happened since then. We are seeing pictures of things going on in Greece. Uh, 
that uh, that sort of look a lot like and sound a lot like some of the things Dimitri talked about in the Soviet Union. How far are we away from that? Ian Gordon is also going to be with us next week to talk about his views, uh, the Kondratiev winter, uh, and also his views that we could be seeing a decentralization going the opposite way of what Arch Crawford was talking about. Certainly, there are people that want to downsize and decentralize and take care of themselves instead of looking to government for their help. Well, that's the big battle that's coming up, one of them anyway. Uh, that's all the time we have for this week. I do want to thank my senior executive producer, Tacey Trump, and Justin Jackman, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Thanks, of course, to our sponsors. Thanks to each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.